1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. People of
0: attention. Calling town city. turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message, it was a little harsh, you know, it's still a little hard for me to hear, please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions, I'm waiting to be found,
2: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 710. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, if you listen to last week's show, that plague of sound issues followed us, even though I kind of stripped down the machine and everything. So, our last, last episode. So, I am now sitting at a new screen, a new computer and well, it's actually, it's me, it's me 3D printing area that I'm kind of sitting in at the moment. I've swapped over to me little laptop. I've had to kind of splash out on a crucial two terabyte hard drive there. I don't know what it is, but I'm hoping when I click, because everything looks okay. It's only when I click save that these issues happen. Do you know what I mean? And then, yeah, for some reason, I thought it was all fixed last time, and bloody wasn't. So, enough of that. <laughs> enough of day-to-day kind of teething issues. So I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. The main fiction is Charlie's Angels by Terry Bisson. Yes, and that this is an original to, to Starship Sofa. It was a P.I.D.A. and Psi fiction in the August 2001 Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Yes, looking back, genre history. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So jumping straight in to the main fiction, I'll give you a little heads up about Terry Bisson. Terry Bisson is a science fiction writer and editor. Currently, he is the series editor for PM's Outspoken Author Series. He also writes this month in history feature in The Locust magazine. His works and story can be found on his website, Terry Bisson of the Universe. This story originally appeared in Sci-Fiction, August 2001. Now, this story is narrated by Mark Nelson. Mark began audiobook narration in 2006 and now has over 180 titles at LibriVox. Recording as Harry Shaw, he has more than 100 additional titles for Audible. While mainly records sci-fi, fantasy and horror titles, Mark has ventured into the classics, including Hugo and Dostoevsky. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Charlie's Angels by Terry
3: Bisson Knock-knock I never was a deep sleeper. I sat up and buttoned my shirt, folded the blanket and dropped it behind the couch, along with the pillow. You don't want your clients to find out that you live in your office. That suggests unprofessionalism, and unprofessionalism is the bane of the private eye, even, and especially, the knock-knock supernatural private eye. I dropped the gym Beam into the drawer and opened the door with my cell phone in hand so it would look like I had been working. Can I help you? Jack Villain, supernatural private eye? She was somewhere on that wide, windswept chronological plane between thirty and fifty that softens men and sharpens women, especially those with taste and class, both of which she appeared to have in abundance. It's villain, not Villain, I said. And, whatever, without waiting for an invitation, she brushed past me into my office and looked around with ill-disguised disgust. "'Don't you have a necktie?' "'Of course. I don't always wear it at eight in the morning.' "'Put it on and let's go. It's almost nine. "'And you are?' "'A paying client with no time to waste,' she said, unsnapping her patent-leather purse and pulling out a pack of camel's. She lit a long one off the short one in her hand. "'Edith Prang, director, New Orleans Museum of Art and Antiquities. I can pay what you ask and a little more, but we have to hurry.' "'You can't smoke in here, Mrs. Prang.' "'It's Miz, and there's no time to waste,' she said, blowing smoke in my face. "'The police are already there.' "'Already where?' "'Where we're going.' She closed her purse and walked out the door without answering, but not before handing me two reasons to follow her. Each was printed with a picture of a president I had never had the good fortune to encounter before. "'Now that I'm on retainer,' I said, folding the bills as I followed her out onto Bourbon Street, "'perhaps you can tell me what this is all about.' "'As we go,' she said, unlocking a sleek BMW with a keychain beeper. The 740i. I had seen it in the magazines.' Butter-leather seats, a walnut dash with an inset GPS map display, and an oversized V-8 that came to life with a snarl. As we roared off, she lit another camel off the last. As I mentioned, I am the director of the New Orleans Museum of Art and Antiquities. Didn't you just run a red light? Two years ago, we began a dig on the Gulf Coast of Mexico. She continued, accelerating through an intersection opening a pre-Columbian tomb. Wasn't that a stop sign? We made a remarkable find. A large statue in nearly perfect condition, which the natives knew of by legend as the Veracruz Enorme, or Giant. We contacted the Louvre. The Louvre? We were approaching another intersection. I closed my eyes. Our sister institution was called in because the statue had rather remarkable features for an artifact from the east coast of Mexico, as you can see. She handed me a photograph. I opened my eyes just wide enough to see a picture of a statue, half again as tall as the man standing next to it. Its bulging eyes, hunched shoulders, and feral, sneering face looked familiar. A gargoyle? Indeed, said Prang. Very similar, in fact, to the gargoyles on the Cathedral of Notre Dame. I was beginning to get it, I thought. So you assumed there was a supernatural connection? Certainly not, Prank spat. Our first assumption was that this was, perhaps, created by the French during the brief rule of Emperor Maximilian in the nineteenth century. A forgotten folly or hoax. You're supposed to slow down for the school zones, "'I said, closing my eyes again. "'But even then it would be of great value historically. "'The enorme was placed in a warehouse under guard, "'since Mexico is rife with thieves "'who know perfectly well the value of antiquities, "'even bogus ones. "'I could hear sirens. "'Though I am no friend of the cops, "'I rather hoped they were after us. "'Though I wondered how they would catch us. "'That was almost a month ago, "'the night of the full moon.' The next morning both guards were found with their heads missing. The Enorme was back in its tomb. "'I see,' I said. "'So you realize you were dealing with an ancient curse?' "'Certainly not,' Prang said over the wail of tortured tires. "'I figured somebody was trying to spook the peasants so they could blackmail us. I spread around enough cash to keep the authorities quiet and crated the Enorme for shipment to New Orleans.' You covered up a murder? Two, she said, matter-of-factly. Not hard to do in modern Mexico. The BMW skidded smoothly to a stop. I opened my eyes and saw that we were in the parking lot of the museum. I never thought I would be so glad to get out of a 740i after only one ride. Prang paused on the steps to light a new camel off the old. The Louvre is sending a specialist to look at the Enorme, which arrived here yesterday. I followed her through the museum's wide front door. We raced through the halls and down a short flight of stairs. "'And then, last night—' "'What happened last night?' "'You're the private eye,' she said, pushing through a door that said, "'Authorized personnel only. "'You tell me.' "'We came out in a large ground-floor lab with one wall of windows. "'The windows were smashed. "'The room was crawling with cops.' There was a sickening, slightly sweet smell in the air. Two uniformed cops wearing rubber gloves were standing over a crumpled wad of clothing and flesh by the door. Two forensics in white coats were taking pictures and making notes on handheld computers. I joined them, curiosity and nausea fighting within me. As a private eye, you see a lot of things, but rarely a man with his head pinched off. Nausea won. "'Our former security exec,' said Prang, nodding toward the headless body on the floor, as I returned from throwing up in the men's room. He was keeping watch over the enorme after it was uncrated last night. "'I rushed you here so you could learn what you can before the police totally muddy the crime scene. I didn't tell them what happened in Mexico. I don't want them confiscating the enorme before we learn what it is.' "'I see,' I said." What the hell is he doing here? Ike Ward, the city's shoot-first and ask-no-questions, Chief of Police walked over, scowling at me. I don't need a ghostbuster underfoot. This is a crime scene. Mr. Vallone is our new security exec, said Prang. He'll be representing the museum in the investigation. Just keep him out of my way, Ward said, turning his broad back. You didn't tell me you knew Chief Ward. Frank said after he had stalked off. "'You didn't ask. Nor did you tell me I was an executive. "'It's an interim appointment,' she said, "'but it gives you a certain standing with the police.' I took advantage of that standing, following at a seemingly respectful and hopefully non-antagonistic distance behind Ward's homicide squad, as they examined and secured the crime scene, in their fashion. The broken windows faced east. Through what was left of them I could see a spray of glass on the parking lot, telling me that the window had been smashed from the inside. Someone had apparently gained access, then knocked out the window so they could get the Enorme out into a waiting vehicle, probably a truck. I went outside. There was a smear of blood on the asphalt, then tracks that faded as they crossed the parking lot toward the street. They weren't the tire tracks I was looking for. They were footprints. Prints that chilled my blood, or would have, had I really believed in the supernatural that was supposedly my specialty. Huge, three-toed footprints. Back inside, I watched Ward's forensics scoop up my predecessor into two bags, one large, one small. Then I located Prang, who was busy opening her second pack of camels. "'We need to talk,' I said. "'Upstairs.' Her office overlooked the parking lot. I took her to the window and showed her the footprints. "'So it's true,' she whispered. "'It's alive.' "'I have never figured out why people want to believe in the supernatural. It's as if they find the existence of the irrational somehow reassuring.' "'Let's not jump to conclusions, Miss Prang,' I said. "'Tell me, what exactly was the Aztec legend of the Enorme?' "'Olmec,' she corrected. The usual stuff. Full moon, headless victims, human sacrifice, etc. We did find a pile of bones in the tomb, mostly of young girls. According to the legend, the Enorme had to be fed once a month. A virgin, of course. She smiled and lit yet another camel. So I felt safe. I thought it was all a tale to scare the simple-minded. Until now. And now... You tell me, you're the private eye. Aren't you supposed to have a hunch or something?' "'I'm hunchless so far,' I said. "'Though I'm certain this is some kind of hoax. An elaborate and deadly one, to be sure.' "'Whatever it is,' said Prang, "'I want the Enorme back. Hoax or not, it's the find of the century, and it belongs to my museum. That's why you're here. Unless we find it before the police, I'll never get it back.' "'They see it as stolen property,' I said. "'And we can count on Ward to keep the press away from those footprints, "'at least until he comes up with an explanation. "'He doesn't like to look stupid.' "'Neither do I,' Praying pointed out. "'So where do we begin? What do we do?' "'We begin,' I said, starting for the door, "'by figuring out where we would hide a statue "'if we wanted people to think it was a legendary monster come to life.' then we go and get it.' "'Wait,' said Prang. "'I'm coming with you.' New Orleans' cemeteries are called the Cities of the Dead because they are all tombs, in long rows like little stone houses. No one is buried in the ground because the water-table is so high. The nearest one was La gare de More, only a quarter of a mile from the museum. Pay dirt. I said when I saw that the ancient rusted gate had been forced open. Why are you so certain that this is all a hoax? Prang asked, as we slipped between the twisted bars. Ninety seven percent of all supernatural events are crude hoaxes, I said. What about the other three percent? Clever hoaxes, I said. From the gate, narrow streets between the tombs led off in three directions. I was trying to decide where to begin the search when my cell phone rang. Jack Vallone, supernatural private eye. "'Kill me!' It was a man's voice, a hoarse, sleepy whisper. "'Who is this?' "'Tree!' Click. Dial tone. "'Who is that?' Prang asked. "'My hunch,' I said, folding my phone. There was only one tree in the cemetery, a large live oak festooned with Spanish moss. Underneath it a tomb had been opened, violently. The iron door was twisted off its hinges. Two headless bodies lay outside, clothed in rotted rags, flung in a ghoulish twisted pile. They were so old and desiccated that they no longer smelled. The heads lay nearby, both turned up, eyeless toward the sky. But dead bodies, even headless ones, were not what interested me. Two enormous three toed stone feet stuck out of the tomb, pointing skyward. We had found the Enorme. With Prang at my side, I crept forward and felt the three toed feet, then the thick short legs, each as smooth as granite and cold, cold as any stone. The light inside the tomb was dim. The statue lay on its back between two open coffins, the source I was sure of the bodies outside. The smell was worse for being faint. The big stone eyes were blank, looking straight up. I touched the enormous wolf-like snout. Stone. Cold, dead stone. What now? Prang whispered. You have recovered your stolen property, I said. Now we call Ward and report it. That makes everything legal. Now do you believe? Prang asked, as we headed back to the museum, after watching Ward's minions dust the area for prints, the cemetery groundskeepers refill and close the tomb, and the museum crew load the enorme onto a flatbed truck. Nope. An ancient statue that comes to life in the full moon, and kills? If that's not supernatural, what is? Nothing is. I said. There is no such thing as the supernatural. There is a natural, scientific, materialist explanation for everything. Didn't you ever read Arthur Conan Doyle or Edward O. Wilson? I thought you were a supernatural private eye, she said, lighting a new camel off her latest casualty. That's why I hired you. This is New Orleans, I said. We were following the flatbed through the streets toward the museum. No one paid any attention to the big stone gargoyle on the bed of the truck. "'Everybody has to have a specialty. The spookier, the better. Besides, I got your Enorme back, didn't I?' "'Yes, but it will only happen again. Last night was just a warm-up. Tonight is the full moon.' "'Good,' I said. "'I'll be there watching. Tell Ward the museum is providing its own security.' we found a real thin black man in a cardan suit waiting for us in Prang's office. Boudin, he said, extending his hand. La Louvre. Welcome to New Orleans, said Prang. What can you tell us? The photos were interesting but inconclusive, Boudin said. He held up a small device the size and shape of my cell phone. I will do a quantum magneto scan and let you know. Luckily the new window hadn't been installed yet, so the Enorme could be hoisted into the museum's lab by Crane and laid out on the table. It was late afternoon before the workmen had fixed the windows and gone. Prang went out for cigarettes, while Boudin scanned the Enorme with his device. I took the opportunity to get my first good look at the statue I had been hired to recover and protect. It was made out of some kind of smooth stone and except for its size, about eight foot in length, there was nothing special about it. Laid out, it looked less like a medieval gargoyle and more like a kid's idea of a monster. It had big blank eyes, short arms, thick legs with enormous claws, and two rows of stone teeth like a shark. It looked sort of Mayan, vaguely European, and even a little bit East Indian. It had aspects of every monster ever imagined anywhere in the world. Boudin agreed with my assessment. "'Tres generique,' he said. "'If it weren't made out of this odd stone, "'which is from nowhere in Mexico, "'it would be of no interest whatsoever. "'And its age?' "'Its age? "'According to my scanner, "'the statue in its present form "'is almost a half a million years old, "'and so is a stone it's carved from. "'Of course, that's some kind of quantum error. "'Too young for stone and too old for art.' They're recalibrating in Paris right now. He held up the scanner and smiled proudly. This has a full-time satellite hookup, like GPS. I acted impressed because he clearly wanted me to be, but I wasn't surprised. We live, all of us, in a very small world. Far too small for spooks. Night was falling. I pulled out my trusty cell phone and ordered pizza with pepperoni. Pepperoni? Prang was back. "'The moon doesn't come up until after midnight,' I said. "'If I'm staying the night, you're paying expenses. And I don't eat pizza plain.' "'Make it pepperoni on one side and mushrooms on the other,' said Prang, as she tore open a new pack of camels with her teeth. "'I'm a vegetarian.' In a real private eye story, this would be the beginning of an unlikely romance, but life, at least my life, is much too likely for that. Boudin went back to his hotel, still jet-lagged, while Prang and I retired to the corner of the lab where the techs watched TV on their breaks and ate pizza and watched the evening news, which was luckily still enorme free "'Thanks to Ward,' I explained. "'He doesn't want the press all over a story until he can show them a suspect.' "'What's the rub between you and him?' she asked. "'I was a cop for eighteen years,' I said. "'A hostage negotiator. "'We had an incident where a school principal went postal, "'took a third-grade class hostage. "'I was about to get the kids released "'when Ward bursts in shooting. Four kids and the teacher were blown away. "'I broke the blue wall of silence "'and filed a formal complaint. "'But Ward's still there. "'And I'm not,' I said. "'Go figure.' And pass the pizza." Prang got the couch, I got the armchair. I missed my Jim Beam, but I had Charlie Rose on the TV, which is almost as good for putting you to sleep. It was a rerun, Stephen Jay Gould talking about the intricacies of evolution, a favorite subject of mine. But was it really a rerun? Halfway through their talk, Gould and Rose were joined by Charles Darwin. I recognized him by his beard. Darwin's cell phone rang, and Rose and Gould both turned into girls. Only it was three girls, all armed to the teeth. I sat up and knew at once that I had been dreaming. Charlie's Angels was on the TV, a rerun. Through the lab's windows came a soft, silvery glow. The moon was rising. My cell phone was ringing. I answered it to shut it up. Jack Vallone, supernatural private eye. "'Kill me!' the same male voice as in the cemetery. "'Who is this?' I heard a click and then a groan behind me. I turned around. Was I still dreaming? I certainly hoped so, for the Enorme was sitting up, staring straight at me. Its eyes were wide open, reflecting the newly risen moon like oversized silver coins. "'Wake up!' I whispered, poking Prang's shapely hip. "'What?' she sat up. "'Oh, shit! Where's your gun?' "'Can't stand the things. Not that a gun would do any good.' Still staring straight at me, the enormous slid off the table in one fluid motion, graceful as a cat. It started across the room toward the couch, stubby arms outstretched in an eerie mixture of menace and plea. I jumped behind the couch, praying right behind me. "'Who are you?' I asked. "'What do you want?' The Enorme stopped and looked around, as if confused. Then it turned away, toward the wall of windows. Moaning once again, it lowered its head and smashed through the windows, frame and all, and disappeared into the night. Alarms started to howl all over the building. I ran for the window, pulling Prang by the arm. She twisted out of my grasp. "'I have to turn off the alarms,' she said. The parking lot was bathed in moonlight. I climbed out through the broken glass. There was no sign of the Enorme, not even bloody tracks this time. The cold light of the newly risen moon seemed to mock the certainties of a lifetime, which lay shattered all around me, like broken glass. ''Now do you believe?'' Prang asked, lighting a cigarette at my side. ''Give me one of those. Thought you didn't smoke. I didn't believe in monsters, either.'' Prang had called the police to tell them it was a false alarm. Now she used my cell phone to call Boudin and tell him the truth. "'Incroyable,' he said, when he arrived from his hotel. "'Have you heard from Paris?' I asked. "'Any idea where that stone is from?' Boudin shook his head. "'It's not from anywhere because it's not stone.' He showed me a scanner. Even with my bad French I could read the word at the bottom of the tiny screen." synth "'It's also slightly radioactive,' said Boudin. "'They're analyzing the scan in Paris to see if it's the material or a source inside.' "'One question,' said Prang, raising her chin and stroking her neck between thumb and forefinger. "'Why didn't it pinch our heads off?' "'I think it wants to be followed,' I said. "'And it knows we're the followers.' "'Let's get following, then.' said Prang. We only have two hours until dawn. We have to find it before it kills somebody else. The museum might be liable. I have a hunch we're not going to find it until it wants us to, I said. Boudin, did you scan those eyes? We, oui. Could they be some kind of photoreceptors? I'll have Paris check them out. Good, I said. While we're waiting... "'Why don't we all get some sleep and meet at my office at noon?' "'Sleep? Noon?' Prang lit another camel. "'Shouldn't we be out looking for this thing?' "'I told you, I have a hunch. Isn't that what private eyes have? Isn't that what you're paying me for?' Morning is the only quiet time in the French Quarter. I was dreaming of Darwin again, dispatching killer girls around the universe, when Prang and Boudin knocked at my door. "'You were right about the photoreceptors,' said Boudin. "'How did you know?' "'Apparently the Enorme is activated by moonlight,' I said. "'And what about the radioactivity?' "'Still waiting.' "'What are we doing here?' asked Prang, looking around my office with ill-disguised disgust. "'Where are all your ashtrays?' "'We're waiting for a phone call.' "'From who?' "'From a friend, if my hunch is right.' "'I'm sorry. You can't smoke in here.' "'What do you mean, a friend?' She took a deep drag and blew it up toward the ceiling. "'Tell me more.' "'There was something about that phone call in the cemetery. And then last night. "'Have you ever heard of civil twilight?' She and Boudin both shook their heads. "'It's the twenty-six minutes right before sunrise and after sunset. The half-light of dusk, of dawn.' Boudin looked out the window. So, it's noon. Perhaps the moon has a civil twilight as well. It's twelve-thirty-five, and the moon sets at twelve-fifty-seven, according to the Naval Observatory, even though we can't see it. And if my theory is right—my hunch, I mean— My phone rang. Jack Vallone, I said, supernatural private eye. Kill me! It was the same voice. I held the phone so Prang and Boudin could hear. I know who you are, I said. I want to help. Where are you? In the dark, dreaming. Click. Was that who I think it was? Prang asked, and it was not exactly a question. That, I said, was your Enorme. These calls come only when the moon is rising or setting. Civil twilight, said Boudin. The mind is open to all sorts of strange impressions right after waking or just before sleep. Perhaps it's true of this creature as well. When I got the phone call in the cemetery, I assumed it was the blackmailer or the hoaxer. But it was the enorme itself wanting to be found. "'Kill me before I kill again?' Prang asked, fishing the last camel out of her pack. "'A werewolf with a conscience?' "'Not a werewolf,' I said. A robot. A what? The weird stone that is not stone. The photoreceptors. The radioactivity. We are dealing with a device. Who built it, then, and what for? Bodin asked. I think, unfortunately, we have seen what it was designed for, I said. It's some kind of war or killer robot. As to who built it... Save it for later, said Prang. I need to get some cigarettes. And it's time for lunch. The Chateau is the best restaurant in the French Quarter. That's the upside of working for a major museum director. The curse made more sense, said Prang, after we had ordered. Nobody sacrifices virgins to a robot. The Mayans didn't know from robots, I said. Wasn't it Arthur C. Clarke who said that any sufficiently advanced technology looks like magic? "'That was Jules Verne,' said Boudin. "'But I must admit, your theory fits the facts. "'According to Paris, the stone is some kind of silicon substance "'with a toggling molecule that allows it to change "'from solid to flexible in an instant.' "'Synthétique,' I said, digging into my chicken Provencal. "'There's one big problem with your robot theory, "'or hunch, or whatever,' said Prang. "'The enormous half a million years old, remember?' between four hundred seventy-seven thousand and four hundred eighty-one thousand,' said Boudin, checking his scanner. "'So,' said Prang. She pushed her plate away and lit a camel. "'No one could have built a robot that long ago.' "'No one could have carved a statue either,' Boudin pointed out. "'No one on Earth, anyway.' "'Exactly,' I said. "'I'm afraid you can't smoke in here,' said the waiter. Extraterrestrials, said Prang, blowing a smoke ring shaped like a flying saucer. Aliens. This is worse than ever. Now I need a science fiction private eye. You had one all along, I said. I never believed in the supernatural. I believe in the real world. And as Shakespeare said, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in our philosophy. That was Voltaire, said Boudin but your point is well taken.' "'You've both been watching too much Star Tank,' said Prang, signing the check. "'But whatever the Enorme is, I want to find it and get it back. What do you say we take a ride?' The parking valet brought the big BMW around and gave up the keys with a visible sigh of regret. "'Where do we start?' Prang asked as she peeled away from the curb, and I closed my eyes. "'Any hunches?' "'None,' I said. I doubt the Enorme would hide in the cemeteries again, unless... Unless it wanted to be found, said Boudin. Prang's car phone rang. Prang here? Yes, find. Kill me. I lunged for the speakerphone switch. Where are you? Are you awake? No, dreaming. Where are you? asked Prang. City. City of the dead. He was fading. "'Please kill me before I wake.' Click. Dial tone. "'City of the Dead! Big help!' Prang said. "'New Orleans has over twenty cemeteries in the city limits alone.' The phone rang again. "'Prang here, is that you, Enorme?' "'Keep your opinions to yourself,' said Chief Ward. "'Where are you, Prang? I hear your statue has gone missing again.' "'I'm out for a drive, if it's any of your business,' said Prang. "'And don't worry about the statue. It's under control.' "'We have ten calls from people who saw it walking up Rampart Street just before dawn. Prang, what is this thing? A monster? Is it the murderer we're looking for?' "'Don't be silly, Ward. It's just a statue.' "'We're putting out on all points. Shoot to kill.' "'You can't do that. It's museum property.' "'Stealing itself? What is this, Prang? Some sort of insurance scam?' "'Hang up,' Boudin whispered. "'Huh?' "'Boudin's right,' I whispered. "'Ward's using the phone to track you.' "'Damn!' Prang clicked off the phone. "'I thought he was awfully chatty.' "'We cruised the cities of the dead, looking for open gates.' The GPS screen on the dash of the B&W allowed me to follow our progress without looking out the window and subjecting myself to the terrifying view of the pedestrians and cars Prang barely missed. "'You are sure that was it on the phone?' Prang asked. "'I thought it only called during the so-called civil twilight, right before or after moonrise.' "'Maybe it's changing,' I said. "'It is activated by the moon.' but only communicates when it's dormant. Dreaming. Perhaps it is dreaming more. Perhaps we are stimulating some new response in it. Boudin's scanner communicator beeped. Anything new from Paris? Prang asked, lighting a fresh camel and pitching the old one out the window. Just feeling out what we had, said Boudin, checking the tiny screen. The Enorme is solid all the way through. There is no internal anatomy at all, only field patterns in the pseudo-stone activated by a tiny nuclear power cell buried in the center of the mass. The enorme appears to have been grown like a crystal, rather than made. But who put it here? Prang asked. And why? There were no humans here half a million years ago. Just hominids, half-human, hunting in packs. That's it, I said. Charlie's angels. Charlie who asked Boudin. "'Darwin. I've been having these weird dreams about Charles Darwin.' "'Is this another hunch?' Prang asked. "'Maybe. Suppose you wanted to speed up evolution. How would you go about it?' "'Soup up the chromosomes?' offered Prang, as she deftly maneuvered between an eastbound Coke and westbound Pepsi truck. I concentrated on the GPS screen again, where we were a flashing light.' Make conditions harder, said Boudin. Apply pressure. Exactly, I said. Suppose you found a species, a primate, for example, right on the verge of developing intelligence, language, culture. But it doesn't really need all that. It is perfectly capable of living in its ecological niche. It has intelligence, or at least enough. It makes fire, it even makes some crude tools, stone hammers, wooden spears. It has spread all over the planet and adapted to every environment, from the Equator to the Arctic. It is perfectly adapted to its environment. "'It is not going to evolve any farther,' said Boudin. "'No reason to,' I said. "'Unless—unless you seeded the planet with a killer or killers—killer robots, berserkers that would pursue this species relentlessly—something that was big, fast, and hard to kill.' And smart. Charlie's Angels, said Prang. I get it. Survival of the fittest. Berserker robots with a mission evolve or else. The BMW's cell phone rang. If it's war, don't let him keep you on the phone, I reminded Prang. And if it's our friend. Prang here, hello. You got it, said a deep, smoky, dreamlike voice. "'Now kill me, please!' "'Got what?' Prang asked, as she scattered kids and crossing guards. "'Kill you?' I asked, eyes squeezed shut. "'So I can rest,' said the Enorme over the speakerphone. "'There were twelve of us. I am the last.' Twelve what? Angels? I mean robots?' one in each corner of your teardrop globe. We stalked and killed your kind, or what was then your kind. We slaughtered the weaklings and pushed the rest into the caves and cold hills, out of the pretty plains, away from the meat-runs. The dragon myth, said Boudin. Racial memory. There is no such thing as racial memory, said Prang. Nonsense, I told her. What is culture but racial memory? Then I slept for a thousand years, dreaming, but I could not speak. Jomilko could not hear. He would not kill me. Jomilko, Praying lit a fresh camel, sounds like a chain store. Sounds Olmec to me, said Boudin. Was your Milko the one who put you in the tomb? Saved me from the moon. Let me dream and dream. But he would not kill me. We want to let you dream too, I said. Where are you? City of the Dead. Which one? Prang asked. c c city The enorme began stuttering like a bad CD. Ka-t-t-t-t- Tell... which... click. What happened? asked Prang. We overloaded him, said Boudin. If this berserker hunch is right, the Enorme is programmed to evade. He can't tell us where he is any more than we could decide not to breathe. Then we have to check them all, said Prang, stepping on the gas. I didn't want to watch, so I ducked my head and watched the blinking light on the display. Our speed was alarming, even there. Then I saw another blinking light in the upper left-hand corner of the screen. It was stationary. ''Head north,'' I said. ''Crescent Street, near the corner of Citadel.'' ''There are no cemeteries there,'' Prang protested. ''Is this another hunch?'' ''Yes.'' That was enough for her. I put my hands over my ears to block out the screaming of tires as she made a U-turn. Damn, said Prang as she power slid off Citadel onto Crescent. I opened my eyes just enough to see a run down business district with a Dunkin' Donuts, a Starbucks, a Woolworths, and an abandoned movie theater. No cemeteries. A wild goose chase, said Prang. Wait, said Boudin, look what's playing. I opened my eyes a little wider. The Marquis of the Bijou was missing a few letters. But the title of the last feature was still readable. City of a Dead. We parked in front of Starbucks where the BMW wouldn't be so conspicuous. The Bijou's wide front doors were chained shut, but I figured there would be an exit in the back and I was right. I figured it would be smashed open and I was right. It was dark inside. The smell of old popcorn, tears, laughter, cokes, and kisses all mingled in a musty bouquet. The seats had all been torn out, sold, I suppose, to coffee-shops or antique malls where they would seem quaint. The Enorme lay on the bare sloping concrete floor, his eyes staring straight up at the Baroque ceiling with its cupids and curlicues, angels, and occasional gargoyle. I approached and touched one great three-toed foot like the first time and like the first time, he was as cold as any stone. And I was glad he was cold, here in the gloom, where he was safe from the rays of the rising moon. "'Cool!' whispered Prang. "'Villone and his hunches. Give me your phone and I'll call the museum.' "'Wait,' I said. "'Inorme might have something to say. He uses the phone to talk. "'I can dream here.' said the familiar voice booming through the theater. I am safe here. Now he's coming through the speakers, said Boudin. Apparently he can access any electronic grid, even turn it on, even supply it with power. I am the last one, Enorme said. They want you to kill me. Who? I asked. Who made you? The Makers made us to make you, sailed the stars and found the little teardrop worlds where life could be nudged awake. Yours was not called Earth then. It was not called anything. Your kind was all over the planet, silent but strong. Strong, Prank said. We were weak. That's a myth, said Boudin. Actually, Homo was the most impressive killer on the planet, even without language and culture. With fire and hands, sticks and stones, hunting in packs, he could live anywhere and face down even the saber-tooth. "'Yes,' Enorme's voice boomed. "'You were the king of the beasts. We made you something more.' "'Made us?' Prang asked. "'To survive?' You had to kill us. To kill us, you had to develop tools, cooperation, language, understanding. Kill us one by one. We were hunted with sticks and stones, smashed with boulders, thrown into fiery pits, buried alive. There was no dreaming in that dance. I am the last. "'How come we never found the others?' Prang asked, lighting the camel in her mouth off the one in her hand. "'Maybe we did,' I said. I was thinking of statues in Greece, India, the Middle East. But Enorme corrected me. "'All that is solid melts into air. Killed we are set free. Back to nothingness. It is the end of our pain.' AND OF OUR USEFULNESS. "'You don't mind dying, then?' asked Prang. "'No. Killing is what we do, what I do. Dying is what we are, what I am.' "'We don't want to kill you,' I said. "'We want to let you dream.' "'Chomilko, let me sleep.' He kept me away from the pearl world that awakens me. He let me sleep the centuries. Then, a hundred years ago, I began to dream. He must mean radio, said Boudin. As soon as there was an electronic grid on the planet, it awakened something in him. I can only dream when I am not awake. I have been dreaming for a hundred years.' You awakened me so that I could barely dream. That was our mistake, said Prang. We will let you sleep. We'll build a special room for you in the museum, and you can dream forever. They want you to kill me, said Enorme. They want to come. Cool, said Prang. They can come, too. I felt a chill. Don't be so sure. We don't know what they are or what they want. "'When we are killed, it is done,' Enorme said. "'The Makers will come.' "'He's a transmitter,' Pudan said. "'When he dies, they will all know we have survived. "'He's a trigger, a signal.' "'Or an alarm,' I said. "'If we kill him, they know we have evolved.' but they will also know we didn't evolve past killing.' "'What are you saying?' Boudin asked. "'Maybe we're not supposed to kill the last one. Maybe it's a test.' "'Is that another hunch?' asked Prang. "'Maybe it's not our decision to make, since it involves the whole world.' "'They want you to kill me,' Enorme repeated, his voice echoing through the theater. The Makers will come from the sky. It will be over. Forget about dying, said Prang. She pointed at her watch, then at Boudin and me. It's after eleven, guys. We have to get a normé back to the museum and out of harm's way before the police find him. Otherwise— Too late, said Boudin, looking up. I could hear the womp 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 of a chopper hovering overhead. Damn, said Prang. Just when. The helicopter drowned out her voice. Boudin and I looked at each other helplessly. We heard footsteps on the roof, on the fire escape. We heard sirens outside. Crash! Suddenly, the stage door burst open. Stand back! Hostages, stand back! Ward, I cried, we're not hostages. Don't shoot! We just discovered what this thing is. It's. "'I know what it is. It's a monster,' said Ward, stepping in front of his troops with a bullhorn. "'I've got the place surrounded.' And he did. The front door burst open and armed cops appeared. They all wore flak jackets. Two carried anti-tank guns. "'Don't shoot!' Prang said, stepping coolly into the line of fire. "'Ward, I can explain everything.' "'This had better not be a trick,' Ward shouted. No trick, said Prang. It's a federal matter. Hell, it's international. And we need your help, Chief Ward. It was the Chief that did it. Hold your fire, men, Ward shouted. The SWAT cops lowered their weapons. Close call, I whispered to Boudin, as Prang took Ward's arm and pulled him aside. She spoke fast, in low tones, pointing first at the Enorme, then at the ceiling, then back at the Enorme. Ward looked puzzled, then skeptical, then amazed. Boudin smiled at me, and we breathed a collective sigh of relief. Too soon. Behind Ward and Prang, through the smashed-open rear exit, I could see a vacant lot in bare trees, outlined against the rising moon. The silver light washed across the concrete floor like spilled paint. "'Ward! Prang! Close the door!' I shouted. Too late.' I heard a groan behind me. ''No!'' I heard my own voice shouting as Enorme stood up. The saucer eyes were shining. A voice boomed over the theater-speakers, ''Kill me!'' ''Tat-tat-tat! Blam! Blam!'' Bullets whined as they ricocheted off the pseudo-stone. Enorme spun round and around in a grotesque dance, his wide eyes pleading, his stubby arms reaching out for the door. For the moon. Hold your fire! I yelled. Kablam! The theater rocked with the blast of an anti tank shell. Enorme spun one last time, then shattered and fell to the concrete floor in pieces. No! I yelled, stumbling, falling to my knees. It was all over. Prang and Ward edged closer and closer to the shapeless pile of pseudo stone. Boudin helped me up, and I joined them. "'What the hell?' Ward muttered. "'The pieces were starting to smoke, like dry ice. "'The enorme was fading. "'All that is solid melts into air. "'We watched in astonished silence until the pieces were all gone, "'as if he had never been. "'What the hell was that, a ghost?' asked Ward, "'looking at me almost with respect.' I shook my head and retreated to the open door. I couldn't answer him. I couldn't bear to look at him. "'That was a robot!' said Praying angrily extracting the last camel from her pack. "'From outer space! And priceless, you fool!' Sent here half a million years ago to accelerate our evolution,' Boudin explained, "'and to signal its makers when we were finally capable of destroying it.' "'Well, it's sure as hell destroyed,' said Ward. "'So I guess we sure as hell passed the test.' "'No. "'It was almost midnight. "'I stepped outside, past the puzzled cops, "'and looked up at the million cold stars, "'scattered like broken glass across the dark floor of the universe. "'I wished I had a cigarette. "'I wondered what the makers were "'and what they would do with us when they came.' No, I said again to no one in particular. I think we flunked. The End of Charlie's Angels by Terry Bisson.
2: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: Get your personalised plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: And there you go. Big thank you, Terry, sir. It's an honour to have you on the show. It certainly is indeed. And Mark, it is lovely to have you back, lad. It is absolutely fantastic. So... Next up, our very own Amy H. Sturgis Ems!
1: Hello my friends, it's time for another look back at genre history and today I have some really cool (laughs) material to share with you but first I'd like to back up and throw a little theory at you, Some, some definitions to sort of set the stage. We have talked in the past about alternate history, that is works that imagine some kind of difference, some kind of change, some kind of what-if scenario in which the world might have gone in a different direction, a consequence of some kind of alteration in history. Alternate history is a term that gets used a lot. Sometimes people call it alternative history. Some people call it eukronia. And some people, particularly those outside of genre studies, who are just looking at literature with a capital L, will call it counterfactual historical fiction. But you know me, I am a genre person, (laughs) and I do see alternate history, that's the one I'll be going with, alternate history is a part of speculative fiction. It is a science fictional kind of enterprise. And just to back that up, I want to go back to my working definition of science fiction, which is what I use in my classes, and then I also want to back that up with some scholarship work that has deeply influenced my own way of viewing genres. So when I'm in class and I'm talking about science fiction, I consider four major ingredients for the genre. The first is the what-if question, because science fiction is an experiment, a thought experiment. What if X, Y, or Z? Then you extrapolate from that, and there's your story. The second part is that the extrapolation, the answer to the what-if, has to be plausible, not probable. This isn't attempting. tempting to diagnose or prognosticate or somehow tell the future, anticipate. This isn't some kind of prediction. But science fiction does need to provide a plausible explanation. That's where the science part of science comes in. That it's logical, that it makes sense, that once you have that what-if, once you have that thought experiment, you have to then build... An answer to the what-if question that is based on rationality, that is based on something that could happen, and that adheres to the science that we know, or that utilizes something that seems to adhere to the science that we know. All right, so we have what if and we have plausibility. The third part is the intellectual excitement that comes with the thought experiment itself. There's a reason that the author or the storyteller or the filmmaker or television creator or artist wanted to ask the what-if question as a mirror of the time, as a way of hoping for a better time, pushing for answers to questions, pushing for solutions to problems. There is an intellectual engagement and excitement and momentum there behind the work. And lastly, through the thought experiment, through the what-if, through the plausible answer to the what-if, and the intellectual excitement behind the question, well, we learn something about the human experience, what it means to be human, who counts when we're thinking about sentient life. There is a bigger picture that these ideas respond to, and we learn something about ourselves in the process. Now, that's four-part definition of the what-if, the plausibility, the intellectual excitement, and the engagement with the human condition. That's how I set up science fiction in class. But I want to point out that one of the scholars who is really... Made an impact in my own thinking has a great definition, too, that lets us pull back and see what science fiction is doing in relationship to other works, including mundane fiction. That's James Gunn. James Gunn, the scholar, not the filmmaker. In his essay Toward a Definition of Science Fiction, which is chapter one of Speculations on Speculation, Theories of Science Fiction, which is edited by James Gunn and Matthew Candelaria. That's from Scarecrow Press in 2005. Gunn talks about literature, and here I could expand that to be storytelling in whatever medium the storyteller uses— and then divides that into the literature of continuity and discontinuity. Continuity, same as normal. Situation, familiar. Mundane fiction, in other words. Whereas the literature of discontinuity is speculative fiction. And he notes that the difference between science fiction and fantasy, although I would point out that that is blurred in many instances, the literature of change versus the literature of difference. If you go through the wardrobe and come out in Narnia in a fantasy world, it's different. You don't say, well, I'm going to start my stopwatch and see how long I'm in Narnia because time works differently in Narnia. You can't say, well, I've only got this cash. I guess I'll have to go exchange my currency for Narnian currency at the local bank. No, Narnia works differently. It's different. That's fantasy. Whereas the literature of change is science fiction. And again, that comes back to the hinging point of that what if question. Everything else works the same way, We might be looking at the past, we might be looking at the future, but there is a what-if that sends us off into another direction, into a thought experiment that requires plausibility, working from the rules we already understand in our world, but there is change. So if you put these two things together, the idea of change, the idea of the what-if thought experiment, the what-if thought experiment leading to the change, well then, it seems pretty clear why alternate history is, in fact, science fiction, because it is about a what-if thought experiment. It is about a change. Sometimes alternate history stories are wish fulfillment. Sometimes they are nightmare fulfillment. Sometimes they relate to an assassination that did or didn't happen, or the outcome of a war that is different than what history depicts. Alternate histories have been around for a long time, and I've talked in the past about the Sidewise Award for Alternate History. That was conceived in 1995, when it was clear that this was a thing, and that the alternate history genre within science fiction deserved its own awards. And so you can go and check out the past winners from the last several decades, at the Sidewise Awards for Alternate History at uchronia.net. That's U-C-H-R-O-N-I-A dot net. So what I wanted to mention to you today, or the question I want to pose today, is how old is alternate history? And one answer to that—by the way, I don't think I'm going to answer that definitively (laughs) today—but One intriguing answer that could be provided to that is that alternate history is about as old, at least in the West, as historical fiction itself. And I want to share an interesting example of this. And to do so, I need to go back to the author, novelist, dramatist, educator, Sophia Lee, who lived from 1750 to 1824. This English woman, among other things, wrote a wildly popular work called The Recess or A Tale of Other Times. It was published over the course of 1783 to 1785. Hugely popular at the time. And as a work of Western fiction, that is, from the West, In the English language, it has claim to multiple firsts. Here I'm going to read from the website of the University Press of Kentucky. This press put out an edited, annotated version of the recess with editor April Alliston in the year 2000. And here is how the press describes the recess. Quote, First published in an era when most novels about young women concentrated on courtship and ended with marriage, The Recess daringly portrays women involved in political intrigues, overseas journeys, and even warfare. The novel is set during the reign of Elizabeth I and features as narrators twin daughters of Mary, Queen of Scots, by A Secret Marriage. One of the earliest Gothic novels, the Recess pioneered the genre of historical fiction. The novel was also one of the first to describe characters and events from conflicting points of view, and was wildly popular in its day." Now, some of you may have noticed something a little peculiar about that description. If you are aware of the rivalry between Queen Elizabeth I of England and Mary, Queen of Scots. If you know the story about Mary, Queen of Scots' life, her execution, her one child, James, who was King of Scotland as James VI from 1567, and then King of England and Ireland as James I from the Union of the Scottish and English Crowns in 1603 until his death in 1625. Something may have caught your attention there in that description of the Recess. This idea that the daughters of Mary, Queen of Scots, existed and had their own lives. Well, that's the alternate history. That's the what-if. This work tells the story of twin sisters who were brought up in the subterranean underground bunker, essentially, of an abandoned abbey. What if Mary, Queen of Scots, had had daughters, and they were secret, and no one knew about them, and then they emerged from their hiding places and took their roles on the world stage? That's alternate history. That's not just Gothic, although it is. That's not just historical fiction, although it is. It is also alternate history. At least, that's what I'd say it is. And the work is a fascinating read. I do recommend the University Press of Kentucky version of The Recess because there are notes that explain where the story diverges from real history and becomes speculative, and begins those what-if thought experiments. A lot of the characters are real characters who would have been identifiable to readers at the time Sophia Lee published this work, figures from a recent history. And so we have here fictional characters and real characters interacting. I would also point out that what we're seeing here in this work is also something we would see later in the work of the mother of modern science fiction, Mary Shelley. I talked about this in previous episodes of Starship Sofa. In episodes 377, 382, and 386, I did a three-part study of Mary Wollstonecraft and her daughter, Mary Shelley, and how their works really changed the game in a lot of ways, and how we can see the resonances of Mary Wollstonecraft's philosophical positions played out in Mary Shelley's fiction. And Mary Shelley, while changing the genre game with works like Frankenstein and The Last Man, also in her approach to how she wrote about history in historical fiction— including feminist inclusion of women characters and multiple points of view, well, these facets of Mary Shelley's work, we can see that the recess rather paved the way for this, or at least anticipated some of the innovations that Mary Shelley's work would show. So I hope that is of interest to you, Next time you hear the word recess, think of that underground hiding place beneath an abandoned abbey where those twin daughters of Mary, Queen of Scots, lived their early lives in secret. An early what-if, an early thought experiment, an early alternate history. And I look forward to joining you again with something completely different when we get back together again to take another look back into genre history.
0: Thank you.
2: Oh, Amy, always a pleasure. Big hugs there. Thank you so much indeed, Amy. It means a lot. Thank you indeed. So that is it. That is it. Let us hope. Those stories and Amy's little sections sound fantastic. And I know this, they are fantastic. Let us just make sure I can kind of get them to that quality as well. So that's it. If you can, listen again, little tin cup out. Keep this this Starship Sova going. You know, we've kind of been doing it a few years and it would be an honour to keep on doing it for you as well. And with nice sounding audio. Pop over to Patreon or on patreon that that would be fantastic there's links on the front of the website until next week just like to say good night from me thank you for listening I
0: don't get much I'm very Going slowly, won't get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I'm out.